Pierce. It's the second largest county in Washington state. Roughly 33 miles away from the Emerald City, Tacoma is the biggest city in Pierce County. And yet, if she were a little sister, well, let's just say she has been annoyed at being compared to her highfalutin big sister Seattle. The economic lifeblood of Pierce County has always been its huge military presence. Joint Base Lewis McCord is the public's largest employer. A demographic the Carbone Enterprise in the 1970s was trying to exploit, using their taverns across the county as mob fronts for illegal activity. A lot of young men, single, looking for things to do. There were card rooms, topless dancing, prostitution. There was drug activity, heroin. But Carbone's crew got, how should we say, a little high on the hog? A little too big for its britches? How else to explain what would come next? Greenlighting the hit of all people, a devoted civil servant, an agent from the Liquor Control Board just trying to do his job. Digging deeper into the gritty, topless bars that Carbone ran with an iron fist. A criminal enterprise that was hell-bent on not only taking out his competition, but anyone who got in his way. I know who killed him. And I said, oh, it says it's anonymous. She goes, no, nah, it wasn't this group. They killed him. They killed one of their own guys. But there's only so much a community will take before something's got to give, or someone. A stoolie who would eventually sing a song that would come to rock Pierce County down to its very foundation, and nothing would ever be the same again. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is The Scene of the Crime. Oh, I'm so excited we get to go back to the 70s this week. And I'm so excited we got this story idea from a listener who reached out to us through our Facebook page, Scene of the Crime. And uh, his name was Gordy. I just want to read a little bit of the message here because I, I just love the way that he sets this up. Hi, I'm not sure if this is your cup of tea or not, but I'm working with a producer on a true crime screenplay about a 1974 murder in Tacoma. And so he sent us a little bit of information about this. There was a 17-year-old carrying a 357. There was a you know, carbone mafia. I mean, the way that he sold this story, I'm surprised it hasn't turned into a made-for-TV movie yet. Well, I think he that's exactly what he wants to happen. But you know, Kim, I called dibs on this story <laughs> the second that Gordy messaged us because I actually lived in Ruston. Now, that's the city that's like right right next to Tacoma. And believe it or not, when I was a little kid, my dad was a police officer. Yeah, for the Ruston Police Department. And I was way too young to know what was going on back then. I didn't even know about this story that happened back then, but I was certainly intrigued. And so that headline in the News Tribune from 1974 that Gordy sent to us was titled Patron Kills Bouncer at Tiki. Now, that's a nightclub, and it was actually in Lakewood, which is a part of Pierce County. But to understand the story, we have to first start at a different scene of the crime in 1977. Mel Journey, who was a liquor control agent, was just coming out of his house. And uh, before he got in the car, he was waved at his daughter and spouse who were looking at him through the window. And these two individuals, both masked, approached, one of whom took out a shotgun and fired it at the house. His spouse and daughter ducked. And then the other individual who had a handgun shot him four times point blank. 
and uh, left him for dead. Uh, at the time, it was a mystery. No one could figure out why this happened. It made no sense, you know. I can imagine that people think, you know, liquor control officer, what do they do? They hand out tickets for underage drinking or for selling to underage people. Why would yeah. somebody want to murder a liquor control officer? That look on your face is, is the scrunched eyebrows, yeah. the total <laughs> lack of understanding. That's exactly the, the theme of the time. Like, what what happened here? And that, that cut that you just heard is from Bill Barsma, who's had a long political career, which includes two terms as mayor of Tacoma and two terms as a city council member. And he was the Democratic chair of Pierce County. Prior to his election as mayor, Barzma taught business and public administration at the University of Puget Sound, and currently he is the president of the Tacoma Historical Society, which is Jeez, that is a long business card. <laughs> that, you know what? And he's got the history that we would need to tell this story. Yeah. And so he had a real front row seat on the political war games going on at the time. And Bill says that the assassination attempt was more than just a dastardly crime. It was like the canary in a coal mine. He was a liquor control agent, and uh, his job was to uh, check local establishments, making sure that they're complying with the law, you know, that they weren't serving underage people, and so on and so forth. I mean, he was just a guy who was doing his job and uh, was certainly notable, particularly, and uh, no one could figure out why. Turns out that it was a miracle. He survived. They didn't expect he would, but he did. That's incredible. It is incredible. He was shot point blank? Four times in the chest. That was a terrible shooter. I mean, that person needs to lose their job. <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, his family, I think he ended up having eight kids. I mean, so it was like this is a huge family man. You know, he should have died for whatever reason, the will to live. He did survive. He had multiple blood transfusions to save his life. And he ended up getting so many blood transfusions. Remember, this was back in the 70s that he actually got hepatitis C. Oh, man. Right. So, so yeah, I mean, he survived, but... He also had to deal with hepatitis C for the rest of his life, which is yeah. no picnic. And what he realized and what they were trying to put this hit out on him is that he realized that the Carbone organization did not pass the sniff test. They went after Journey because Journey was asking questions. He was turning over rocks. He had to be silenced. And he was an honest, hardworking public servant. Uh, so the only way they could silence him was to... Uh, there was a lot of of just crazy, weird, strange stuff happening around that time. I think from like 1972 to 1977, there were like 10 unexplained firebombing of taverns, of homes. And so it was like, that's what he was investigating. He was trying to figure out like what, what was it from his vantage point of being a liquor control agent, which means that he would go in there and make sure there was an underage drinking going involved, that everything was above board. So maybe because he knew the people who were running these taverns or were involved in these yeah, establishments, he, he felt like maybe he could figure out what the heck was going on. He was making connections that other people weren't making. Okay. So there was a lot going on that were not connected. And he was beginning to make those connections that there was the Enterprise, which was led by Tacoma mobster John Joseph Carbone. So the liquor control agent saw things that he just thought weren't right, that didn't make sense. There were card rooms, topless dancing, prostitution. There was drug activity, heroin. So there were a whole array of illicit activities generated a lot of money. And these other taverns posed a threat. 
And so there were millions of reasons why Carbone would feel protective of his operation. We happen to be in an area that is potentially very lucrative for these kinds of activities because we're surrounded by the military. We're surrounded by Camp Lewis, Joint Lewis-McChord at that time, McCord Field and, and Fort Lewis. A lot of military uh, presence, a lot of young men, single, looking for things to do. And the county government was led by the county commissioners and kept to understand that we had a patronage system back in those days. And so you had a lot of jobs that uh, could be offered. And it was uh, an environment that was conducive to illicit activities. And so Pierce County was still considered the Wild West. And so you not only have this mob boss, you know, trying to get, you know, dominance there, but you have this government system that's kind of like a mob boss in and of itself, where it's really a good old boys network, where people are just like, you know, hey, I want you to be this person within the the organization that, you know, so it's like, yeah, they could give jobs to their friends and family, exactly, give contracts to people they liked. Exactly. So it, it kind of like, festered with this crime spree that was happening that wasn't being pieced together, although people were like, hey, what's going on with this? Assault, murder, arson, kidnapping. I mean, there are a whole range of things going on. And, you know, strange things happening. The bouncer at one of uh, Carbone's taverns, young guy. And from what I understand, he had been subpoenaed to appear before a grand jury. That scared the heck out of him. He indicated to his family that, you know, I got to get out of here. And he kind of disappeared and then reappeared face down in Spanoy Lake. Also during this time, one of the dancers in in one of these Carbone operations, she was called to uh, testify before a grand jury and an investigation that was being handled by Tacoma police. And she was found dead, having overdosed. The Tacoma police department were convinced that that she she was murdered. And of course they tried to kill Mel Journey Another person was a fellow by the name of Donald Rice, who was the uh, security guy at, I think, the Back 40 Tavern. And when it was firebombed, the perpetrators, who were part of the enterprise, tied him up and left him in the tavern to, to burn to death. And he managed to get loose and start yelling at some people that were outside that saw that the tavern was going up in flames, pulled him out, saved him. So this was this was going on. This, this, this is incredible stuff that was going on. It seems like there were so many incidences and and ones in which the victims survived. It's hard to believe this enterprise continued to get away with all of this. I know. It's crazy. And here's a good place, Kim, to segue into Gordy's story, the original listener who reached out to us. He reached out about the Carbone investigation and his alleged involvement with the potential witness. According to Gordy, who in 1974 was 18 years old, and after decades of working in IT, about five years ago, he started working with an author and screenwriter, Jay-Z Murdoch, with Voyage Media on a screenplay about how he became involved with a woman on the run. Her name is Sarah. That's what Gordon says. And it, and it started with a frenzied call from a friend. My friend called me up and said, she's a stripper at the Tiki. Come on over here. It'll be free sex. All you got to do is give her a 10-minute ride. That's Gordy. And according to Gordy, his 18-year-old self was intrigued. Of the friend- course. <laughs> I know. Jeez. I know. When I heard that, I was just like, is it too tacky to say a ride for a ride? <laughs> I, I don't know. I was talking to my <laughs> husband about it, and I'm like, you know, where do I go with this? Because it just seems like, in many ways, such a... 18-year-old boy's response, but then I don't want to, like... It's not okay. It doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make it okay, and it's like, I don't want to make... 
I think this is proof that 18-year-olds' brains are not fully developed yeah. and they make poor choices, but it is not unusual for them to do yeah, that. Yeah, and we talked for like an hour and a half because I was just like the way was the Was he surface... remorseful about like... Well, I think that what he was was he. it took him like a 45-minute mark to get him to say that. Because to admit to, to admit it. to why because yeah. I kept saying I kept going back why why would you go and just help get involved in this story you're 18 years old I can't imagine many you know 18 year old guys wanting to kind of raise their hand and just and just help you know this this damsel in distress you know I think the woman as he explains it was like in her late 20s so it wasn't really connecting the dots and then finally it was like the dam broke free. And even though I couldn't corroborate his story in the connection to the Carbone investigation, I was still like curious to kind of hear his insights to what it was like in that time period. Kurt said, come get her. We don't know where she's going. We don't want to know. And then she wouldn't even tell me the address. So I wouldn't have the address. Kurt is the is the drug dealer friend who says, come over here, pick up this this stripper and you'll get as much sex as you want. And you only have to take her for a 10 minute ride. OK. Gordy describes the gritty scene of the 70s at a time when he was a young man experimenting with drugs and looking for excitement. But he says when he picked up the woman in her late 20s, she looked nervous and scared. She got into his car and gave him directions to a house. And when they arrived, Gordy says she asked him to come in with her. Inside, he described two couples living in a commune-type setup, and there was a lot of booze and a lot of drugs. Somehow, Sarah had talked the couples into letting her stay there until the end of the week when she planned to get out of town. Alone in her room, Sarah handed Gordy a newspaper article from the Tacoma News Tribune detailing the murder of a bouncer named Danny at the Tiki. And I said, oh, the Tiki. I said, yeah, Kurt said you were a topless dancer there. And she got kind of angry and she said, no, I was not a dancer. They get paid much better than I did. I was a waitress. And it was after that conversation that the woman Gordy refers to as Sarah asked him if he had a gun and if he'd be willing to stay with her for a week until she had plans to flee to Salt Lake City. She was adamant that she didn't see the murder. She said, I was on the other side of the parking lot. and I didn't see it, but I think she saw it. I think she saw it. and I think she didn't want to admit even to herself that she saw it. Again, I asked Gordy why he as an 18-year-old would commit to protecting a woman he had known for less than 24 hours on the flimsiest details. People don't understand much now. The way you talked back then, you were very careful about everything you, you said in public or to other people because of the drug culture. You didn't want to talk to a narc. You didn't somebody undercover. You didn't want any cops overhearing you or just you talked in code all the time if you could. A lot of what I read from her was body language and just fear emanating off of her at times. And Gordy, even at at 18, crazily was an expert marksman. <laughs> yes, I got my letter in, in riflery for three years. Um, and like, I, I think part of my thing is people tend to feel secure around me. And that comes, I think, out of martial arts when I was very young. And then Civil Air Patrol, I was a flight commander and I trained cadets in, in junior high. So I learned that kind of thing. I remember one of the um, one of the adults telling me that I was a leader and I said, I don't want to be a leader. And he said, I'm sorry, kid, you're you're a leader. You're stuck with you. Might as well just own it. But she didn't seem concerned about can you handle a gun? She just, you got a gun, bring it and hold on to it while you're with me. I added that other part in there because I just have you ever are you the type of person where people just assume that that you're a leader and that <laughs> the so eye roll happening. Annoying. And how you just kind of like 
he was very open about rejecting this idea that that people just assume that he was a leader. And so therefore, you know, he had to be a leader. And I think that sometimes that's a tough place to be, you know, or or the reverse, where people assume that you're just a loser and that you can't be a leader. You can't, I mean, I feel like I've been in both camps, mm. you know, like growing up. I don't know. The the pet peeve I have is that once they identify you as a leader, then you're expected to do that 24-7, even when you're not in the mood. Yeah. You don't get a day off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as, the, as the mom of many, exactly. so, many children. So getting back to Gordy, he says that they partied a lot during that week, but they also had some deep conversations. She had told me about her. She was married and had two kids in Salt Lake City, and the judge took the kids away from gave them to her husband, and she'll never get them back. And I had told her that, look, don't work for these people anymore. Don't work for these kinds of people anymore. Go get a decent job and reestablish yourself. Stop doing this kind of, you can, you know, see look how scared you are. You know, this is bad for you. And she's like, yeah, I, I know you're right. How terrifying must have this situation been for her? All of these crimes are going on that she knows, you know, how evil the Carbone network well, is. People around her are dropping like flies, it sounds like. <laughs> and nothing is happening. Yeah. There's no police involvement, it seems, because they keep getting away. It's like they're untouchable. So Gordy says, you know, he, he did feel some deep shame attached to the story because of the way he came to meet Sarah, but also that, that he never got closure. He left her house one day to go to work, and when he came back, Sarah was gone. And at that point, I thought, how do I vet this? How do I, who can I talk to back then that um, I told about this? And then I re remembered and realized I never told anybody. And I've asked my friends and family, and they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. There's no way I would have told my mom. My mom would have freaked out. You did what? So Gordy never found out about what happened to Sarah back in 1974. But by 1977, the, the crime spree by the Carbones was raging. Ten taverns and businesses had been firebombed and four homes torched over a six-year period. And according to Seattle Weekly, with a $2 million loss, besides arson and murder threats, the gang performed insurance fraud and ran shakedown and protection scams, prostitution and gambling. The Carbone Enterprise appeared to commit crime without worry or even planning. A lot of eyeballs were on the top cop overseeing the investigations into these crimes in Pierce County. Sheriff George Janovich. Now, I asked Bill, what was this top cop about? George Janovich was kind of a wonder kid, a straight uh, smart cop. When he first started his career, he moved quickly up through the ranks, uh, became the chief's uh, uh, criminal deputy uh, at the age of in his late 30s. Uh, people respected him. Uh, easy going, nice, smart, but as I say, street, street smart, street smart cop. So you have what appears to be a very capable, well-respected sheriff. So what's the deal? Bill says back then he recalls Janovich being obsessed, but not about the crime spree. And so when I would meet with George, the, the conversation always, always revolved around the prospect of retired Tacoma Police Chief Lyle Smith coming out of retirement and running against George uh, in the 1970 election and that George had to build up this big campaign war chest to uh, essentially discourage Smith from getting into the, uh, into the um, political realm. That's all he would talk about. He was obsessed. And he would always talk about, I got to raise the money, Bill. Can you help me raise the money? And I remember he said, I want you to come to one of my fundraisers. 
and uh, which I attended. He said, I want you to meet someone. This is John Carbone. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Right. That takes some guts. Not only are you covering up crimes for this guy and his enterprise, but you invite him to a fundraiser and introduce him to other elected leaders. Yeah, I mean, it's the balls on this guy is wow. pretty incredible. I'm surprised you couldn't see him through his pants. <laughs> Holy cow. I know. So the Pierce County Sheriff's Department had been unsuccessful in solving any of these crimes. So the FBI and the ATF joined the investigation in the fall of 1977. So at first, they were working with the Pierce County Sheriff. And then suddenly, they were like, "Uh, we need to go a little bit deeper here. And over a 13-month investigation, the FBI, their undercover work, they got a break. Two half-brothers were arrested in Kansas City with the shotgun used in the attempted murder of the liquor control agent Melvin Journey at his Ah. home in Tacoma. Up against the wall, the pair admitted they'd been hired by this guy named Valentine on behalf of John Carbone to kill the liquor control agent. These names, Valentine, Carbone. I I mean, (laughs) come on. I mean, this so reminded me of like the deuce. There's that show like on HBO and it's so gritty and you don't really think of the Pacific Northwest yeah. as, as the place of like the mob boss and the Carbones and the Valentines and the Stoolie. But you know yeah, what? This should be happening in Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the next step in that is to get Valentine, to lean on Valentine, which they did. It turns out that this guy flipped. He became a kind of an informant for the people who were the FBI and G-men and so on that were doing the undercover work. The G-men. I love it. (laughs) So Valentine spilled his guts on everything, including the biggest breakthrough of all. The key was when the undercover FBI agents met with Janovich, claiming that they were representing tavern interests and they wanted to uh, get his support in establishing an operation in Tacoma. And then they paid him the $1,300 more to come. Once he accepted the money and he was on tape twice, That's all they really needed. Couldn't he argue that it was just a campaign contribution? I mean, isn't there some way, if they just gave him money, is there some way he could get out of that or or try to... No, there was a couple of times and and the FBI agents were acting like they were Chicago mob boss type guys and so that he was basically securing his protection. So all of the, the building blocks were being put into place and that Sheriff Janovich had agreed not only to look the other way when it came to the enterprise criminal activity, but this was from the, the previous stoolie, you know, Valentine and, and the other two that got, you know, caught first. Like they were already kind of putting those pieces in play, turning evidence against Janovich. So they just needed that final thing to get him on tape to say, yeah, there's no way you're getting out of this. Although he did try, of course. So not only did he look the other way when it came to the enterprise's criminal activity, but also to give advance warning of any raid of its topless dancing and illegal gambling operations so evidence could be removed or destroyed. On top of that, it was alleged that certain sheriff's deputies would harass rival nightclub owners and made doing business so difficult. You know, we remember that story about how they literally firebombed the competition with one of the employees inside and who would have burned alive had passerbys not gone and and helped save him. So it really shows the enterprise Carbone. They did whatever they wanted without worry of any reprisals. So Bill says all hell broke loose in November of 1978 when 15 arrests were made, including the sheriff, after the shocking headlines that rocked Pierce County. Some were perhaps relieved 
that finally something happened. I got to say that when I read the paper uh, that morning, I was going through cognitive dissonance. I mean, I really couldn't believe. I rocked back in my chair. I thought about it myself. You know, everything now makes sense. The trial had to actually even be transferred to San Francisco in March of 1979 because it had gotten so much press, as you can imagine. I mean, yeah, how would you find an impartial jury in (laughs) Pierce County? Forget about it. And and how, you know, people must have felt about their system, like hardworking Americans going to work every day, punching the time clock. And here you have the sheriff taking bribes and like looking the other way. Uh, Before the trial began, six defendants pled guilty and agreed to testify as government witnesses. But the one thing good to come from this case was a complete overhaul of the political system in Pierce County. Voters ended up approving dumping the three commissioner system in favor of a county council and executive with the sheriff being an appointed position rather than elected office. Janovich was convicted of two counts of racketeering, conspiracy, and obstructing justice. He ended up serving only six years of a 12-year sentence. He died in 2005 of complications from a ruptured appendix. Now, Carbone was 58 when he was convicted on 14 counts, including racketeering, conspiracy, mail fraud, and interfering with interstate commerce. He was sentenced to 100 years in prison and $163,000 in fines, and he served only 15 years in federal prisons. He ended up dying in 1998 at the age of 79 at Western State Hospital from illnesses related to psychosis and dementia. And then he suffered from Parkinson's disease. I I think about the comparison between the sheriff getting 12-year sentence, he only served six, the mob boss Carbone sentenced to 100 years, only served 15. So clearly the courts felt like Carbone was much more responsible, liable for all of this criminal activity and violence that he brought to the city and to the county. Yeah. But I wonder whether locals thought perhaps the sheriff got off a little too easy. I'm sure they did. I mean, it's like it's hard to believe. I don't know. It's like in cases where it's like, oh, we're going to throw the book at him. You know, he's in law enforcement. You know, we need to make an example of him, which it sounds like they should have. And I was shocked when I saw that he only got six years. And it was like during I think that during the six years they had to move him so much because he was the top cop. And, you know, that puts you, you know, the bullet right right at you when you're in he prison. He was probably in solitary confinement, not because he couldn't be around other people, but because other people couldn't be around him. Yeah. I mean, it was getting really expensive to move him around all over the place. I don't know. I mean, I, I think six years considering turning a blind eye. I mean, these guys felt so the Carbones felt so entitled that when they would firebomb their own places to get the insurance money like Carbone had his own home in Gig Harbor firebombed like they went in there and there wasn't any furniture there wasn't any clothes like they took everything out because they knew that it was going to happen and yet they collected all this insurance money and it's like that takes some chutzpah you know to because they do an investigation and if you don't have any furniture in there I mean any you know, CSI is going to be like, hey, this seems kind of weird. And they did that with their businesses, too. The ones that got firebombed that they received the money from and they had taken everything worth of value out of the place. So they just really were carte blanche doing whatever they wanted. And and it's interesting that Carbone was never charged with anything related to the hit. I mean, it's like he's the one that gave the green light. Well, maybe they just figured they had so much overwhelming evidence in the rest of the cases. Mm-hmm. And if they were able to get him a sentence of 100 years, mm-hmm. 
there would maybe be no point in pressing charges for the murder when when, you know, it would be really hard to connect the dots on that one. Yeah. And I think that in these types of cases, like when you think of these mob bosses from like, you know, back in the day, they all got the RICO violations. Tax evasion. Yeah. 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 So it's I'm sure that that was at play here, too. It's not just what did you do, but it's what can we prove that you did. Right. Right. Yeah. But I think there's a difference between Carbone, who is just a citizen, and somebody who's been in law enforcement his entire life and was elected by the community to protect them. And then he not only allows this criminal activity to go on, but he he actively behaves in a way to allow it to go on. It's not just a matter of turning a blind eye. But he is actively engaged in sending out his liquor control agents or, you know, doing these other activities that are that are helping Carbone continue with with his violence and illegal activities. And so even though the sheriff maybe wasn't a direct participant in the murders or the firebombings or whatever, I feel like he should be held to a higher standard. Oh, I can because of his station. Yes. And what's interesting here, too, and it's very ironic because this is back in like the 70s, right? When um, disco was king. (laughs) Well, not (laughs) only was disco king, but also remember Watergate was happening. Mm. And so we know that like Nixon would have been elected, right? Were it not for this whole like Watergate ruse that happened. Well, it's very similar in the sense of like, he was so obsessed with his war chest and and wanted to win another election against this his nemesis Lyle that he ended up doing these illegal activities to beef up this war chest when he actually won in a landslide right and he was arrested for these crimes like right after he'd won so it's like all this stuff and that's not to say for sure that that's why he did it bill you know kind of that was one of his anecdotal ideas based on conversations that he'd had that he was so obsessed i think he with, was obsessed with money yeah Because why else would you be so obsessed with becoming the sheriff again if you knew that it wasn't to enforce the law? It wasn't to protect people. It was probably because that's a pretty well-paid position. He was getting kickbacks from Carbone and other people. I am sure he had a pretty nice little chunk of change in the bank. And he didn't want to see that funnel of money shut off. Yeah. Well, as they say, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think in this case... That, you know, there's no denying that. Absolutely. That he, I know I wasn't going to say that because it seemed too cheesy, but absolutely. I'll be cheesy. I'll do it for you. <laughs> okay, great. I'll bring the cheese. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost like when I came across this story, that was the most compelling part of it, it was not necessarily the mob and all that stuff, but just that, that it went that high. I mean, it was just, it's incredible to think. Anyway. So, Kim, what have you been working on for next week? Well, I understand right now, you know, it's kind of the time of year when families are planning their summer vacations and those fun, you know, weekend camping getaways. A lot of folks in the Pacific Northwest love the area around Mount Rainier. It's so beautiful. But you might want to rethink your plans once you hear this story, because, you know, when you when you go and you get a campsite, you never know who you're going to wind up next to. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is The Scene of the Crime.